Good evening. From New York City, I'm Dan Rydell, alongside Bobby Bernstein, sitting in for Casey McCall. Those stories plus will take you to Talladega, Tallahassee, and Tuscaloosa, where the ball had trouble finding the basket. We'll take you to Salt Lake, Westlake, and Westwood, where the team had trouble finding the bus. All that coming up after this. You're watching Sportsnet on CSC, so stick around. We're out. Two minutes back. Alongside Adam Amin, I'm Steve Cimino, and you're listening to Those Stories Plus, the Sports Night podcast. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. I'm, I'm older. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm into the. Now we're on the same decade again. Welcome to nice. our, welcome to our club. Is this I hope the th- to our you're not to the third too, decade. Club. Hope you're not put off too badly by the back aches and the creaking knees. I think I can feel my metabolism slowing down as we talk. Um, no, it's, it's been a fun last month. Uh, I'm glad we got a chance to run right back onto it. We had a, a little publicity in the last couple of weeks, which is pretty cool. Uh, an article in uh, the New Statesman in London, of all places. Yeah, not just a little press, international Inter- press. Got, that was kind of cool. <laughs> that was very cool. We had international press for this podcast, which is really cool, uh, considering that we've uh, we've been enjoying doing this. So on, we're on episode 13. This is great. Episode 13, Small Town. This was another kind of hidden gem for me as I was rewatching it, thinking, hey, there's a lot of stuff in here that I really love. And I just, if, again, if you asked me what episode it came from, I would not have said Small Town. There's so much going on. There, are, I mean, we first off, we venture outside the big scary studio. For the first time For the first ever. time, we go to Tony Anthony's, or as Casey will say later on, Anthony Anthony's. And uh, we have a new producer in the chair for Sports Night. Natalie gets her shot to produce a show. A lot of things are happening. We get a new anchor in this episode and Bobby Bernstein. There's, there's a lot to digest here. This is one where I wonder what the catalyst was to make them leave. Do you think there was like some notes coming down like, you know what, there's a little too much workplace. Let's get them out there. Let's I'd, see what's I'd like going to think, on. like, let's, let's get some folks out there. I feel like you need to have a little bit of movement to avoid some, some stagnant feel. Oh, yeah. Season two, and I think... It's the same set, if not supposed to be the same yeah. restaurant slash bar as well. Season two, they're hanging out. At, they're at the bar at Anthony's. It's called, in yes. fact. So it's got to be the same. So place. I'm, I'm assuming it's the same place. But they just but they, yeah, they they they're going there open, after work a lot. Yeah, they open the shows there. They they go there after work. So I think this. I, I like this move. I I really enjoyed being in the studio, kind of getting to know this area. But I'm glad they decided to venture out a little bit. A couple of good, a couple of my favorite scenes, I think, are the conversations going back and forth between the restaurant. And the studio when they're on their their StarTax, their old <laughs> cell phones. So those are those are pretty cool, just because you get the cuts, just to see them like, you know, we're in a different world, but everyone still keeps getting pulled right back in with the gravity of sports night, especially Dana and Casey. There's obviously. a lot of a lot of Qualcomm going on, a lot of Primeco. <laughs> Oh, Prime the little Primeco Prime alien was my favorite guy of all time. My, one of my favorite parts of this was when Casey closes his phone and puts the antenna down too because you have to <laughs> you have to put the antenna down on those brick cell phones i also enjoy he's she uh dana keeps pestering him who's on the phone who's on the phone he says i think i have to answer it first <laughs> which is clearly not there is <laughs> nowadays yeah, you're not so, gonna yeah. answer plus who's making phone calls anymore these days i know nobody we all text now right so small town episode 13 of the first season its original air date was january 12th 1999 written by paul redford and aaron sorkin and directed by tommy shalami a uh, little note about paul redford i did a little digging here he was pretty heavily involved in the sorkin camp for a lot of the time uh he was just mostly a story editor and producer on both sports night and the west wing he wrote 13 episodes of the west Wing and two of sports night and he did some work on dirty sexy money which was with peter krause as well right, yeah. so a little connection there uh, I also wrote down that he's now associated with designated survivor with Kiefer Sutherland, 
also on Dirty Sexy Money, Donald Sutherland. So he's really keeping it close. This is this is a, little, a lot of inbred resume. I really dug here. in, yeah. and I wanted to, I wanted to get all the details, all the personal facts, all the friends that he's hanging out and with. And there's no relation, as far as I know, to to any other famous Redford, I guess. So no, I guess not. This guy's a standalone Redford. This episode won an Emmy for outstanding multi-camera picture editing for a series. Janet Ashikaga pulled that in. And I've got pages and pages of notes just on the commentary that Janet did for this episode as well. So I'm going to try and pepper those in as we go through. There are a lot of cool directorial choices in this, a lot of cool editing choices in this, like you talked about with the cell phones going back and forth, so you feel like you're still back in the studio. Um, I really, really liked a lot of the directorial choices, especially especially in one scene in particular uh, when Dana and Casey are kind of going back and forth at the restaurant. We'll talk about that when we get there. Our synopsis for this episode. Dana and Casey have the night off and spend the evening on a double-dating disaster, while Natalie produces Sports Night Solo and proves a breaking news story won't break her. All right. Yes. Solid. Solid writing. <laughs> I really enjoyed that Solid one. synopsis writing. <laughs> really enjoyed that one. Not too punny. Not too uh, schmaltzy. Just just a, a little, a little wordplay. Nothing wrong with that. So the episode opens up with a title card, which is a nice... T- this is bookended by title cards, yep. this episode. Uh, and we are just finishing up a segment live on the air about a boxing match. I love this little opening here where Dana says, just, you know, into his ear, fill for 15 seconds, and instead of keeping extrapolating the boxing story or going on and on, he just talks about needing to fill 15 seconds, which is pretty funny. There are moments of surrealism that I like. Once in a while during a broadcast, whether it's uh, during a game or during a studio show, I actually kind of like these moments of surreal, uh, kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit, like, hey, we have a producer. They're telling me to do this. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Like that, to me, (laughs) being in it so often, because some of this... Like, when you're in this business, everything is... The goal is to make everything really polished, looking and sounding, right? You just want it to look pristine, and and everybody knows exactly what they're saying at all moments, and you never get a chance to kind of realize the chaos that goes on behind it. I kind of love moments of surrealism when it comes to live television, especially when it comes to sports. Quick side note, just because I use the word... I think Webster's Dictionary named surreal as the word of the year this year. Did they? Yeah. It has been a surreal year. It's been a surreal year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right off the bat here, I've got questions for you. You kind of just answered a little bit of them, but it has always been a a question of mine about being ready to fill, being on live television. Like, I've seen pictures of your notes, and you do a lot of research, and you have lots and lots of things, obviously, that you want to talk about, probably more than you get to talk about during a given broadcast. Do you have things in mind, like, okay, if, something, if this goes a little long, uh, you do more live coverage, you know, at the game. If there's, like, an injury or somebody's down or when you have to make up some time when there's no game going on, do you have things already marked? Do you ever kind of think on your feet? Do you sometimes just play it by what's going on in front of you? How does, how does that work in your mind as a day-to-day announcer? So my radio training, doing games on the radio when, I mean, you're, you don't have any pictures to tell you what's going on, uh, my method was always to go back to the beginning I have a reset for every game that like if somebody tells me hey top of the hour you know reset us real quick or you know you need to fill a couple things or it's been a while since you know you ha- you've you've said these main notes about this game you know people are tuning in and out more often than not on TV so let's say you get to the fourth quarter it's a close game you come back from break or something I have a little reset that I'll say you know for the other day I was doing the New Mexico Bowl and it's, you know, Capital One Bowl Mania starts off with the New Mexico Bowl. The Lobos looking for their first bowl win since 2007. UTSA in just its sixth year as a program in its first bowl game. 
if you just tuned in, you see the score already, and I've just given you two or three lines to give you a lot of context for what's going on. So I always have a reset there, and then I'll typically go back to that, and if I do need to fill time on TV, uh, they'll always give me something like, hey, we're going to do a promo, or hey, let's do this package. There's usually something in the hopper on the TV side, but on the radio side where you're kind of doing your own thing, I'll always go back to the reset, and then I can expand on whether it's notes about the team or I need to fill about this particular player. You know, so the, the, my, my radio training has helped me on the TV side to be able to learn how to fill at that point, too. Nice. I've always wondered. I feel like it's like uh, somebody who does, like, rap battles or something. You're making it up, but you kind of have ideas in oh your yeah, head that yeah, you're going to pull out. You've written stuff down. Right. I mean, anybody who thinks of freestyle is pure freestyle for most of these guys. They right. do write stuff down and kind of keep it in the back of their head for when they need it. Excellent. Very good. So the show comes down, uh, and Casey announces, hey, I'm off tomorrow. I will be back on Friday. This immediately starts off our main plot, which is Dana and Casey both off. Neither of them wants to be off. They're both married to the show, obviously. But the big thing, it's a date, a double date, in fact, where Gordon is trying to hook up a woman. We don't get her name yet. I'll hold off till we get to her. Gordon is trying (laughs) to hook up a woman with uh, Casey from his office. So she's another lawyer. And both of them, just the prospect of a double date, Dana and Casey. Casey seems to be adverse to the idea of a date at all. But they both sort of are like, plus, we've got this little will they, won't they. This will be a very uncomfortable meal for us. And I like that uh, Casey has to announce to the national TV audience, hey, I'm off tomorrow. Because this was a time where, like, these pairings of people that you spend your nights with they matter. Oh, like, yeah. they were a lot more significant. Like, every single night when I turn on the TV, these are the people that I expect to see. And when – I like, I don't want to be blindsided, so good thing that Casey <laughs> told everybody that tomorrow he's going to be off. Otherwise, who knows what kind of hell would break loose. And, yeah, you see the awkwardness of these two because it's hard to extrapolate a will-they-won't-they they scenario for this long. I think Aaron Sorkin and the writing staff have done a pretty decent job of keeping it somewhat fresh on the will-they-won't-they they stuff. And they haven't – oversaturated episodes with them maybe until now right and it's not oversaturated to me i'm just saying that they haven't done it yet and i feel like they handle it differently than a lot of other will they won't they where they both acknowledge that there's like a will there won't will they won't they they both acknowledge that neither of them they both kind of think the other one feels it but they don't it's so they do it a little differently as well which i like it's not just like you know making eyes across the room oh i think ross has a thing for rachel kind of thing they're both convincing each other that the other one has this thing for the other like it's I think they're playing into it and not wanting to buy into it themselves. Right. And the awkwardness of that isn't even what makes dinner awkward. There's a whole other thing right. going yeah, on. Right, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it is fresh is a good way to say it. It's a, it's a different approach to a pretty a pretty big sitcom trope yeah. that they they take and make it their own a little bit. I also like that in this opening scene, we get to see parallel scenes, Dan and Casey, as Casey is trying to explain why he doesn't want to go, and then we get... Isaac and Dana as Dana is trying to explain why she doesn't want to go and they meet (laughs) together as Isaac's like I just want to go home can I please go home but they're both arguing you know we don't have to get off tomorrow he he can go she can go I want to work I want to be here I want to be a part of this now as Dan and Casey talk about this with both of them wearing full suits by the way which is for some reason in my head seems like a rarity no basketball shorts or jeans or jeans uh no laugh track did you at any point during the episode hear any laugh track at all because i can't recall a particular moment especially in moments where i thought the laugh track would be there i didn't really hear any at all there are the slightest hints i think it's finally starting to get phased out at this point we're about midway through the season uh janet ashikaga even said something about she did not like it sorkin didn't like it shalami didn't like it it was very hard to edit 
she said, because they had so much coverage and because they had to do so many different takes and because the way that Aaron Sorkin writes his dialogue does a lot of overlap and repetition and what does a laugh make you do but pause for the laugh, right? You have to hold for the laugh. And she said it makes everything awkward. None of them liked it, but it was kind of handed down like this is a sitcom. This is what sitcoms have. So she definitely addresses that and confirms some of our suspicions right there. Yeah, so I mean in a, in a rhythmic writing style that Aaron Sorkin and all of his staff seem to have, very difficult when you don't want to pause, but the laugh track makes you pause. You don't want to have to deal with that. That's why, I and mean, it makes sense because we talked about it from episode one, basically, the timing of a lot of these lines, the lines keep going, but the laugh track is kind of overlapping some of these lines early right. in the season because the, the laugh track's in for a, a show that wasn't written to have one. The, the exact quote, I, I wrote it down as I, as I listened. She said, exactly where you would want to put a laugh is exactly where you need to put the next line of dialogue in order to keep the pace going. Because this is a move, move, move show. I'd be curious, somebody, somebody out there do this research for us because I'm not going to do it. But I wonder how many words per episode there are in this show versus like your, your other regular kind of sitcom. Because I'm betting it's like three times as much. It has to be, right? It reminds <laughs> me of, there's the old British sitcom Faulty Towers with uh, John Cleese okay, from yeah. the 70s often rated to be like the greatest show of all time very very short run but there's on a, again the dvds of that i have john cleese <laughs> talks about how their scripts were like 30 or 40 pages longer than a regular script because yeah. there was a lot of talking a lot of descriptive detail and i feel like that's got to be a sorkin script as well yeah i would think so i think these would be very long thick scripts when they get handed out because just the volume of words even though you're jamming all of it in in a small amount of time the same amount of time that any other 22 minute sitcom is going there's just more content, more volume there. We get some more seeds planted for beelines as we find out. Well, one reason that neither one of them wants to go is because the trade deadline's tomorrow night. What if there's a last-minute trade? We should be here to cover this. That seems like a little just making excuses detail. Sure. It's going to end up playing out as well. So always good. The Chekhov's trade, we'll call it this time. So here's our first issue with the episode. It's January. Why is the trade deadline in January? <laughs> like, it's clearly wintertime. We, ju- we passed the Christmas mark a couple of episodes ago, and you're still in the winter. You haven't gotten to baseball season yet. And the trade deadline, for those who are unaware in baseball, is at the end of July. It's during the season. During the season, right. <laughs> so why is the trade deadline going down? Whether it's clearly talking about baseball, you, I feel like you could have used – winter meetings at this point because the winter meetings have been going on for a long time as a matter of fact in 1999 they were in dallas texas you you could have used the winter meetings as an excuse to to make the trade but for some reason you know for for people like you uh, of of our ilk i I guess we would be a little bit confused by that it's it's it really just MacGuffin for the plot. It's like, we need some kind of breaking story. It could have been anything. It could have been anything. It, it could have been anything be in the, the world. Yeah, it could have been a, a, a trade in general. It didn't have to be because of the trade deadline. This is also mentioned by Janet Ash- Ashikaga that they tried really hard to keep it consistent with what would be going on. And yeah. I, I just went, ha, as I was watching. <laughs> because we've been watching so closely, like, nope, that's not, nope, that's that, not right. The, the trade deadline would not work. I did actually, <laughs> because I'm such a dork for it, I looked up uh, – an article on MLB Trade Rumors from 2010 titled Remembering the 1999 Trade Deadline, <laughs> and we'll link to it on our website, thosestoriespod.weebly.com. And just some of the names I thought were really funny. Brad Penny, Matt Manti, uh, Jim Abbott, Jim Jose Abbott. Guillen, um, just running down, Kenny Rogers, former Texas pitcher, uh, LeVon Hernandez was uh, was part of the trade deadline, Jason Grilly, David Segui, uh, Randy Velarde, <laughs> uh, Chuck McElroy, one of the best uh, Cubs that nobody ever cares about. Jason Isringhausen, 
So there, there was a that BJ Wait, Ryan. There did you say Jim Abbott is in one handed Jim Abbott? One handed Jim Abbott, oh, yeah, man. of course. He was you part- had a whole story about that in the show. We could have <laughs> run with that plot. So, yeah, there was just a lot. I, I just laughed because I wanted to see what was going on in 1999 in baseball. But, yeah, that there's, there's a, an uh, anachronism right there. You can't really have the trade deadline in January because it takes place in the middle of the year. Oh, already. Already we're ripping it to shreds. This seed comes to an end with Dana and Casey, again, like we were saying, facing it head on. Well, the yep. only reason you don't want to go is because you don't want to see me with Gordon. Well, you don't want to see me with uh, this lawyer woman, right? So they're facing it head on right there, addressing the fact that it's got this kind of like, ooh, what's going on with you romance going on? But yep. it comes to a close and we go to a commercial there. We lead into that commercial break with uh, a particular cadence that I think Casey's gotten used to with, and I bet you will. I bet you will. I figured, I figured uh, they, he, that's become like his go-to, because what, what was it in the other episode? I'm going to have a good time. I bet you will. Yeah, because that's it what he was saying the yeah. same thing, right? I bet you will. I, I have a I'm going to go have I a good time. Will. I bet yeah. you will. So I think that's become his go-to. We come out of the commercial in the conference room where they are still talking about the trade. So back to the Janet Ashikaga notes here. This part I thought was really cool. She said the conference room, filming the conference room, was one of the hardest things because it has four walls. Yeah. And she said you could gauge a director, she would judge a director, by how they handled the conference room, by the way they did it. Did they just kind of go in a circle around the table? Did they try and get a lot of back-and-forth shots? How did they handle it? And she obviously praises Tommy Shalami, who directed this, because... You know, he seems to be the gold standard for right. for the directors here. Uh, but she also notes that it wasn't just, you know, here it is, everyone's sitting here. It's not like a sitcom sitting at having dinner where for some reason no one is sitting on that side of the table. Yeah. This is a room. This is like a workplace. And so to, to see how directors would handle it and how they would deal with conversations or, or how they would set their cameras, she said, was a way to judge them. And obviously Tommy Shalami does a great job, as he usually does. They're talking about the trade. And I, I'm mentioning that we know that it's obviously at the end they're talking about being the Dodgers. They don't, I think, mention sports or positions or players at any point. They just keep saying the trade. So I feel like for a long time they were trying to maybe leave it vague. So people were just like, oh, they're talking about some trade. But sure. it's very obviously the trade deadline, which really only means one thing. So it's like a very complicated or trying to tiptoe around the subject a little That's bit. That's what it does feel like. And I think yeah. so clearly they were aware of this. So I, because I can't imagine nobody while reading this script just said, "Hey, just real quick, quick question over here." I was wondering, <laughs> trade deadlines in July, right? Are we okay <laughs> with this? And then somebody get, yeah, just just go with it. All right, cool. They probably were like, "No, no nerds are gonna be sitting down <laughs> judging us and, and looking at this twenty years from now." Don't uh, worry about th- it. Th- yeah, no one's weird enough to do this. And then lo and behold, here we are. We get a little back and forth with Jeremy and Natalie here where Jeremy is convinced they were going to make the trade. And Natalie says, I told you that they wouldn't. It seems apparent that the trade won't go through. They had a $5 bet. So we haven't really seen, or I haven't thought about Jeremy and Natalie really up close and personal yeah. for a while. But they get a little bit of action in this in this episode, which is nice to see as well. Sounds like they're kind of uh, comfortable enough with each other in this in this relationship now to where they're kind of going back and forth. And they have these little... We had a little side bet. That's something you do with, like, a girlfriend or boyfriend. Like, yeah, we had this little thing going. That's oh, yeah. funny. Uh, they need to make a little room. They need, like, a, a minute 15 or something like that. So they decide what to cut. little note, a little personal note for okay. me here. They say, well, we can cut either Formula One or uh, Oksana Bayul. And Dan gets really upset about cutting Oksana Bayul. He refers to her as the, the Ukrainian, Ukrainian jewel. I used that once randomly with my family somehow, and they all thought that I made up that nickname <laughs> and you, and ran with it for, like, years, and I don't really think I corrected it. I was like, the Ukrainian Jewel, Oksana Bayul? But so your family thought thing. that you coined Ukrainian Jewel? Yes. And you didn't correct them, no. nor should you. I think they, you should just let them run with it. <laughs> or at least, a, at least one of them did, I think. I'm imagining Tom Semino just looking at you going, 
Man, my, bro- my brother just came <laughs> up with that. That's pretty good. If not for that nickname, though, don't think I could have even told you she came from the Ukraine. <laughs> so the conference room is splitting up. Everyone is very excited for Natalie. She's going to run this show. It's her first time going solo here. She's amped up. She seems to know what she's doing. She's very much in control. Right there with the Oksana by Yule Cut. She's like, well, I just did. I made the decision. I'm in charge today. Was that and kind of a sorkinism, too? Oh, yeah, I think just, I don't know if it's word for word, but definitely the way that it was handled with the, you can't just cut her, and yet I just did. And yet right? I just did. I feel like that's a sorkinism. That's definitely something, that's a very Dana-esque line, I yes. think. And probably like a CJ line as well. Yeah, I, I, if I we, think if so. If carried it over. I can appreciate Natalie's perspective here. I can appreciate being nervous, but being excited. You know, you're, you're confident in your abilities. You've, you've seen how it's done. You think you know what you're going to do, but it's impossible not to be somewhat nervous about the first time. I, I just went through it a week ago, you know, with getting a chance to do uh, an NBA game for the first time. I've seen how it's done. I've, I've watched NBA my entire life, but I never broadcasted a game. But I broadcasted a million other games. So, you know, what's, what's different about it? But it's impossible not to feel any types of nerves. Like, it's, I, I had butterflies the entire day. It was, it was, and you it, did a tremendous job. A hometown game as well. A hometown game in game. Chicago, which is pretty cool. But, like, you know, every, everybody says it, too, to encourage you. Hey, you've done this a million times. Oh, yeah. But there's always something different, and there's always a different set of nerves that come Th- with that. That reminds me of the scene in Hoosiers where he pulls out the measuring tape. Oh, the me- oh yeah, it's he's the same like, thing. It's the exact same the, court. The headset is the on. exact same size, and the, the truck looks exactly the same. And But the nerves that, are going to be there. The nerves are going to be there. Absolutely. A little side note here. I wrote in my notes, Natalie looks adorable. However, about 20 minutes ago before we started recording and the episode was wrapping up, you said... Look at that 90s outfit that's, she's wearing. That's the most 90s outfit possible. She's got these big, like, platform They're, like, heels, chunky, yeah. chunky heels and, like, the pants that are, like, up around the waist. Like, like that's come back. That's, like, oh, no, no, I'm, cyclical. I mean, the high I mean, waist it's, is it's a all, thing. It's all cyclical. I mean, look, Casey's, Casey is way ahead of his time in this particular uh, series. Like, he's rocking stuff in 99 <laughs> that people are rocking in 2016. So as everyone is patting Natalie on the back, Dan kind of confronts her as they're walking through questioning her choice of substitute anchor. You know I would never question your choice of substitute anchor, right? Right. I mean, this is your first time stepping in for Dana. These are your decisions tonight. I would never second guess you, and I would certainly never question your choice of substitute anchor. So what's on your mind? I, I question your choice of substitute anchor. Bobby's fine. She's better than fine. She's very good. She's very, very good. So what's the problem? There's no problem. It sounded like there was a problem. I'm not spreading ill will here. That should be clear. I'm not dropping a dime on anybody. Where I come from, we don't say things about people. You come from Connecticut. That's right. You don't say things about people in Connecticut? We do not. What's the problem? Bobby's a lunatic. Dan. She's an off-the-charts lunatic. Why don't you like her? I like her fine. Talented, smart, very professional. But... Total nut bar. Got it. She's convinced we slept together once and I never called her. Did you? Did I sleep with her? Did you call her? I didn't sleep with her. Why does she think you did? It's hard to say, but it could have something to do with the fact that she's psychotic. It's gonna be Bobby. Your decision. Yes, it is. Very exciting. Thank you. And I love all of that right there. Well, you get the setup for Bobby Bernstein to be this like, ooh, is she out of her mind or yeah. what? I love the volatile. Uh, you got a compliment yeah. her. She's talented. She's smart. Total nutball. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating co- like mixture of compliments and like because I feel like this is how you talk about people sometimes too. It's like, hey, love them. Great person. Couldn't be couldn't be better. You're gonna love this. But here's an additional <laughs> thing about them that should negate pretty much every nice thing I've said about them in the last 20 seconds. I, I love this, and it, this doesn't get resolved in this episode either, as we, we will talk about in future episodes, the resolution, but just this concept that Dan slept with her and never called her, and she apparently is still holding it against him. Just that concept alone, where he's like, I swear that I didn't, is really solid, I think. Because you and I, as people who have seen the entirety of the series, like there is a resolution to all of this, and I wasn't sure... 
if it happened, you know, I was expecting per, you know, it. I was, well, I was like, rewatching oh, yeah, at the end of the episode, don't, don't they figure this thing out? And they don't. And so, so you're left if you've never seen this series, you're left thinking, well, Bobby Bernstein really is a nut bar. Like she really is insane. She really is kind of kooky. So, I mean, there's without any resolution to it, they just kind of leave it hanging because Bobby's yelling back and forth, and and then they go to the trade stuff and kind of fade out on the rest of that story. I think it plays out well for the Bobby Bernstein character too because. When she shows back up, and I just had to look up when it is, in Eli's Coming, when she shows back up, you're like, oh, this lady is nuts. Like, you, you got that already, so that plays pretty well for her. At least you have background on this character, and we don't have to get back into all of the, the background. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's later in this season, correct? It yeah, is. So, it's, so we will get there, but after this episode, you're just kind of left thinking, well, man, Lisa Edelstein played a, played a really good crazy chick. So we go to our new scene at the restaurant. The double date is in full effect. Dana is being neurotic Dana, freaking out about a lemon peel that she's allergic to. Not lemons themselves, just the peel. Gordon has to reach out and say, honey, that's that's my drink. And she's, ah. So she's nervous or being strange, slightly awkward. Across the table, we've got Casey with his date, who is Lisa, it seems like. And he goes on, of course, talking about his ex-wife, which is what every girl wants to hear on the first date. No no one, there's nothing that somebody likes to hear more about on a first date than you're the last people you dated or married. It's, it's how is that not an aphrodisiac? Yeah, 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 I think so it's on the checklist. She gets corrected that her name is not Lisa, it is Lisa. Not with a Z, but with an S. So it's just all sorts of confusing right there. I've never met anybody who's named Lisa that... Well, for, I mean, first off, if I've met anybody like it's Liza, L-I-Z-A. Yes. And I've never met anybody named L-I-S-A that didn't pronounce it Lisa. I, no. Never. <laughs> That's a fact. I wrote down during this scene, why is Casey not cool? Because he's <laughs> so awkward and unfunny and not charming and, like, goes right back into talking about Lisa, his ex-wife. And we've seen stretches where he's, like, the most charming guy in the room. Like, go back to the Christmas episode, and he's on The View, and he's charming the pants off these people, like, on national TV, and you get him out of that element, and it goes right back to, I think, what we've discussed multiple times, and one of the themes of not only this series, but probably just about every other Aaron Sorkin series, tremendously talented people in their element while they're doing their jobs, and you take them out of there, and they just fall apart as normal human beings. Absolutely. That goes for both... Dana and Casey in this scene where they're, Agreed, yeah. they're just stumbling all over themselves. Neither one of them is paying very much attention to their date after this initial introductory kind of thing here. Gordon gives a nice little cheers. He seems like he's trying to have yeah, he's a good time to, with everybody. He, you know what? Let's give some credit to Gordon. Oh, yeah. The man is trying. He's trying to set up Casey with somebody at his office. He's trying to facilitate conversation. Casey makes the joke about Anthony Anthony and Ricardo Ricardo, and they make fun of him, and, and Gordon's right there going, hey, he would have been be Ricardo, Ricardo. Ricardo. <laughs> like that. Like, give him some credit. He's trying to keep everybody loose and, and having a good time. And it just seems like it's almost a, a force that he cannot reckon with, the awkwardness of Dana and Casey. While I wholeheartedly agree that at least until we find out about his nefarious actions, I love Gordon. I think I really, Ted McGinley I, I, knocks I really it out of the park. Gordon. My question to you is this. Do you think when introducing Lisa to Casey, do you think he does that because he either wants – Casey to meet her he, he seems to like Casey sure. although he knows there's that awkward kind of attraction with Dana or do you think he does it to kind of reinforce his like hey this is my woman you find your own kind of thing I think there's a gel uh, maybe not a jealousy just that but a little bit of, uh, of weariness like I know you're trying to get at my girls oh, yeah. we've so. seen them go go one-on-one really like oh, yeah, oh, I'm enjoying doing this I'm enjoying doing that I'm yeah. enjoying having sex with Dana exactly every night. so he wouldn't say that unless he knows that 
Casey's got a bit of a thing for her. So I think it's more about establishing the, the, the territory, like, hey, this is my girl over here. So to destroy, so without being a jerk about it, here's this other girl. Right, and he you gets to look like even more of the nice guy. Exactly. You can be with this girl, stay away from my girl, I think is kind of, you know, while, and, and again, I, I don't want to have recency bias here because, you know, we've seen the rest of how this plays out, but... In this episode in particular, I think it is still a little bit about establishing his territory. I'm going to agree with you on that. I think you're right. Let's talk a little bit about their date, what they did here. So they earlier had gone to see the Holly Dixon Dancers, or the Holly Dixon Dance Company, which is modern dance. I, I guess, guess it's not a real thing, though, no. I don't think, right? I did, I, I've done, I, I, I did a quick Google it. and everything that came up with Sports Night related, so okay. it must be fictional. But it's modern dance, which is probably not going to be Casey's favorite thing. Probably not anyone's favorite thing at this table. And we find out at dinner that it was that they were off their game. <laughs> so <laughs> you can only wonder what that show would have looked like. I love what Casey... I mean, Casey's on the phone with Dan when he picks up the big brick cell phone <laughs> telling him about the Holly Dixon Dance Company. Is it Natalie? If it's Natalie, let me speak to her right away. If it's anyone from the show, let me speak to them. Is it, is it Natalie? I think I have to answer the phone before I can say for sure. Yes, Greg, answer the phone. Thank you. Hmm. Hello? Is it Dan? Hi. If it's Dan, I need to speak to him. No, that's silly. Natalie's got it under control. Is it Dan? What's happening? Danny's about to pull a hamstring, which is more than I could have hoped for during the Humpty Dumpty dance about it. Holly Dixon Dance Company, and they were off their game tonight. Give me the phone. Uh, 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 uh. Somebody forgot the magic word. Please, would you please give me the phone? No. Lisa, would you excuse me for a second? I'm going to take this over where it's quieter. Sure. So the Humpty Dumpty dancers there, obviously not. And again, Casey is across the table from from Gordon, who apparently pulled some strings to get these tickets. We were told earlier it's yeah. not easy seats to get. And this girl that he's trying to impress, and he's like, yeah, this date sucks. Yeah. <laughs> he's like on the phone just talking about it. Like, oh, it's been horrible. This is terrifying. I, I don't want to be here anymore. Like, what? The, there is kind of a level of maybe it's because people didn't understand cell phone etiquette because they were so relatively new. So it's oh well, yeah. I, I was going to say I mean, that's even. It seems almost ruder at that point. Now you're kind of like rude, oh, someone's yeah. on their phone. We're accustomed to it. At this point, not everyone's got a cell phone. You bust it out at the table with a date that you just met and complain about the date. I, I I'm not sure. Like I I think this is pretty. If I'm if I'm anybody, male or female, in this situation, I'm with somebody brand new and they pick out they take out their phone and are like on a call like at the table. Even if it happened today, I don't mind if like like. I've been on dates where, like, the other person's texting. I'm sure I've been guilty of it at some point, too. I try not to. I try to leave my phone in my pocket or in my jacket, and I try not to look at it. I admittedly will take it out. Like, if my date goes to the bathroom, she's like, I'll be back in a minute. I'll take my phone out. A, because you're, you're just like, all right, what do I do here? Right, got to kill some just, time. Got to kill some time, and then you can check up on stuff. And then as soon as they get back, I try to put it away, and I try, not, I try to be engaged with the person that I'm with. But here, they're like, ah. I got a phone call. Sorry. And he like, tell you, eventually Casey goes, let me go. He does go excuse somewhere himself. To, yeah. He eventually uh, does excuse himself. But it's like, come on, man. Like After what? he after he just craps all over the Holly Dixon dancers. <laughs> like, oh, God, I can't believe I came. This is horrible. It's like, put just, and he's like uh, talking under his breath. You think, they're sitting right there. They can hear you talking <laughs> under your breath. We have a little bit of a, eventually we have a callback on the newsroom here, which, and I think you pointed this out earlier, where Dana's kind of like, is it is it Natalie? Is it work? Is it is it Isaac? Or whatever she says. And this reminded me of the scene in the third season of The Newsroom when Will and Mackenzie are in bed and they're like, you know, they're, they're still moving into a house or like fixing up their house. So they're, you know, the phone's like on the other side of the room or something. And the phone rings and at late at night and Will picks it up and Mackenzie goes, Is it Rebecca? Is it Charlie? It wouldn't be Charlie, it'd be Rebecca. Is it work? It would have been my friend if it was work. Is it Rebecca? Hang on. 
I just thought that was kind of a eventual callback. You know, I think the newsroom called back to this to, to this episode of Sports Tonight eventually. I thought that was kind of funny. I like it. Plus, I would put uh, I would put Mackenzie and Natalie on my two t- my, my my list of like hey hey Sorkin, <laughs> good casting on that. And I would say too, like I think Dana and Mackenzie. Very similar. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, Mackenzie is the same uh, job, obviously. the accented version of Dana. Yeah. Basically, same job, tough women, uh, have a thing for their anchors. Like, I th- I think that's uh, I think it's a nice little callback. So while Dana and Casey are continuing their conversation, as he finally excuses himself, uh, Dana starts to bug Gordon about, "Give me your phone. I need to talk. I need to call Natalie. It's five minutes to air." This to me, and this was my note. Like that seems like the worst possible time to call Natalie. I don't want to be called like five minutes before on air. If I'm a on air person, I'm a producer. I'm a, gra- a graphics person. A direct. That this is the worst. There's time. things going on. Unless We've seen this. Uh, unless it's in directly involved with what you need to do for the show. Come on, now's not the time. She's really, really hounding it. By the way, she but. should know better. She's a producer. She wouldn't want to be called five minutes before a broadcast. <laughs> We get a little bit of background on Natalie, too. Still still adding the details, 13 episodes in now. Uh, as Dana says, she's from a very small town in Ohio. There were only 32 people in her graduating class. So that plays out. So she's from Ohio. She went to Northwestern, so she moved, moved over by us for college, it seems yep. like. And now there she is in the Big Apple. I think we... I put her at like 27, 28. Yeah, rel- her, she's relatively young. So she's in her late, like mid to late 20s. Which, again, for her, big deal to step into... This producer's chair. That is a big deal oh, to yeah. have an opportunity to be that young and, and handling a major network cable network show like that. We see her, in fact, kind of as we cut back and forth. She is really she's she's good. holding her own. She's yeah. calling out commands. She's getting things ready. She seems not nervous at all, and she does a very, very good job, at least at this point so far, really setting the table and really holding on. And she does a great job of kind of making the phone call end very quickly as well by, hey, let me talk to Casey. She wants to talk to you. Just hey, real quick. And it hangs up. I can tell that everybody likes Natalie a lot, and they want to do right by her for this for this show. You know, it's a big deal. Everybody, you said it. Everybody's cheering Natalie on and encouraging her. Everybody in the control room is really encouraging. She's leaning on other people, asking Kim, "Hey, do you like this or that? Let's do that." Okay, awesome. Like, it's a very tight knit group, and I really like seeing that because we see that a lot on our are on on our end of things. You know, I I'll, again, I'll call back to what, you know my first NBA game. The crew was so great to me. Like, it was the first time I'd ever been on that crew, and my analyst was Doris Burke, and I had a great director, uh, Jimmy Moore, who directs the NBA Finals, and Jonathan Lobo. We call it Lobovich, but we call him Lobo. Uh, He was our producer, and and everybody was so encouraging, like, hey, if you need anything, hey, this is a great idea. Why don't we try this? Everybody was super encouraging, and you get the same sense with Natalie having this great support group around her. As the uh, scene comes to a close, at the restaurant, I like. Oh, what do you know about the fennel salad here? What do you want to know? What's fennel? <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what fennel. Oh, you don't is, have fennel? Maybe it's just like an Italian thing. We usually not all the time, but after like a big meal, it's kind of like a like a celery almost. Okay. It tastes like black licorice, kind of. So you eat just little pieces of it. It's kind of like a almost a a palate cleanser, aperitif really? kind of thing. Yeah. So it's not a pre entree. It's literally thing. like a like it looks like celery, like fat celery, and it tastes like black licorice. Hold on. So it's got I'm the. Got, yeah, take I'm a literally. Pe- I'm literally googling fennel. We, it, right it, now. It, we call it fenoic. I guess is the Italian thing. Yeah, it looks fennel, like fat fennoic. celery. Yeah, that's it. And it just it's it's like a. After a big course kind of snack before you have coffee and whatnot. So putting oh, so it in a salad after dinner. The that's what I would have it, but that's just my weird kind of tradition. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. There you go. I, I don't am. know what fennel is. <laughs> don't get too excited about it. It's just, uh, you know, it's fennel. just a, it's just a what green. What do you know? Who thought? <laughs> Who would have thought? 
the scene changes and we have the show starting uh, and we get into the Dan and Bobby Bernstein confrontation. Uh, Lisa Edelstein really, really knocks it out of the park here. She does a great job with this character. We don't know much going in. She's kind of set up to be a loony right off the beginning. And she plays it kind of like where you can't tell if she's really crazy or if she really believes what she's saying. It's a hard balance, by the way, to to portray that. And I know this is kind of like almost a sitcom cliche, like late 90s sitcom. It's the crazy woman who knows what she's about to do. <laughs> Look how volatile she is. But she really did play it very balanced, and I thought it was really funny. She's I th- she's a really talented actress because she's played so many different ty- – like a very – like on House, she's a very serious doctor. Mm-hmm. She's the foil to House, uh, you know, the, the – the main character Doctor of the House. show, yeah. the, do- <laughs> yeah, the Doctor House, she's the the foil to him, and then we see her with a great guest spot on West Wing as as this ser- you know serious lawyer who's also a, a call girl. Like she plays a lot of these different characters. She's phenomenal on Seinfeld, also. She's the risotto girl. She's is that right? George's I girlfriend. That. She's, the, I think, the only George girlfriend other than Susan to be in more than one episode too. She's there a couple. How about times. that? That's, I didn't realize oh, that. Oh yeah, I feel full after the risotto. She's got the great New York accent. Oh, that's that awesome. But yeah, I think she, I think she played this really well. You don't know what to expect. No. From her. Fun fact about Lisa Edelstein, and I didn't know this until I read. There's a book called Disco Bloodbath that uh, was written by James St. James which was then turned into a movie starring Macaulay Culkin called Party Monster. Did you ever see this? No, I haven't seen it. I know what Party Monster is, so but I haven't seen it's it. It's this, the club kids in the 80s yeah, where yeah, these yeah. really just high, constantly on drugs. I was going to say high on drugs. <laughs> it makes me sound like a dare officer. <laughs> but they're just like these really drugged up, really like gaudy, over-the-top costumes. These, these like kids, like 19-year-old, 20-year-old people that became really super famous for a brief time in the club scene in New York. She hung out with them and was like, really a part of it she was like this very famous club goer when she was like 20 years old and that was she was part of that she was real deal and then she became an actress obviously so i i was blown away when i read it. i'm like what i had to like google it is this the same? oh my god and it really was person. her wow how about so that she's had quite a quite a life for somebody who's only probably what like 45 years old she's yeah, had I mean, quite a career she's got a great resume and and how about that that's that's a nice introduction into how you into becoming out know, like what a transition no kidding that is. right she she turned legit and she did a great job so we get her explaining that, uh, don't worry, I'm not that silly little girl anymore. And she's really kind of laying into Dan, who's just shaking his head like, I don't know what you're talking about. If we would have slept together, I would have known that we slept together. He's really holding firm that none of this happened. Really cool shot here, again, credit to Tommy Shalami and some editing as well, uh, where we see the monitor is in focus with them talking, but then in the background of the shot is out of focus, them sitting there. So I really love yeah. when they do that, when they play with the cameras like that. It's really cool to me. Again, it's a little bit of a meta shot. You know, here's the world inside of the world that you're watching, and you're getting a peek behind the curtain of it all. Bobby also seems pretty solid she's professionally during that opening kind of tease she's really locked in and she does a good job we even see her kind of like go from angry face at dan to like smiling i'm on camera now and then she has a really nice uh opening you know they they, they're using a lot of alliteration in their writing so they couldn't find the bus (laughs) here's the thing though like dan and casey are obviously writing partners like they write together we didn't see any of the writing between Dan and Bobby. Yeah, she seemed a, to show up at like ten fifty eight and sit down. <laughs> like, but like, but here we go. You get the you get the opening. You know, we'll take you to Tallahassee and Tuscaloosa, where they couldn't find the basket, and we'll take you to you know Salt Lake, West Lake, Westwood, where they couldn't find the bus. Like that's, find the bus. that's tre- I love how she delivers that the line. Bus. Like that's tremendous writing together, and you have to have some kind of part. So we didn't get to see this background of these two writing all this together. Can only imagine what that would have been like 
with these two like silent. So, so I'm going to say <laughs> Tallahassee and Tuscaloosa, and I'm going to say they couldn't find the basket. Well, well, I'm going to go ahead and I'll say we're at Westlake. We didn't sleep together. <laughs> like, like that's how I feel like that's how that would have played itself out. Maybe they just wrote it to each other through emails. <laughs> like, here's my side. Just add to this. <laughs> that scene comes to a close, but we get our, our beeline really coming through here when Elliot comes in urgently saying to Natalie, my guy at LAX said they weren't on the plane. So they here we go. Charter. We get a little intrigue right now about how, how these stories kind of develop. It seems like, here it is, it seems like this 11th hour trade, this unexpected trade is going to go down. They're live on air. Hey, should we pursue this? Should we chase this? What do we do? I think this is the perfect segue to introduce our guests for this podcast. And I, I, I love how you set this up because you talk about Elliot coming in and going, hey, I've got something. And for us on the live TV side, you know, particularly on the game side, uh, I thought we'd bring in not only a reporter, but one of the producers that I've worked with, uh, Joe Taylor, a producer for ESPN and the SEC Network, and Laura Rutledge, same uh, companies. Uh, a sideline reporter and host as well and I just thought they would have a lot of cool insight I've worked with both of them a ton in my career I think two, both of them are two of the best at their positions that I've gotten a chance to work with so I really wanted to get their insight they work together on a football crew as well so you're actually going to hear some of the overlap of their sides of how this works now we'll split the interviews obviously and we'll reintroduce them but I figured we'd start with Laura Rutledge from ESPN and the SEC Network to provide some insight on how things kind of set themselves up when breaking news hits for a game. Laura, I thought you were the perfect person to talk to about this because you've been in so many different situations, whether it's on the sidelines, whether you're in studio, and a piece of news that is breaking, that is intriguing, that is maybe shocking comes out. I was kind of curious, when you're on the sidelines and let's keep it basic to start when an injury happens, when uh, you see something happen on the field during a football game, how do you approach that? Who do you go to? Who do you talk to? Where do you want to place yourself? Kind of where's your head at when something like that happens? Yeah. You know, those are always the things that you kind of wait to happen. And then suddenly they materialize out of thin air and suddenly everything's crazy. So I think the biggest thing that I always try to do even before a game or before an event is just lay a foundation of communication with the sports information director and whoever else may be a point of contact for each school or each person or whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, and once you do that, you sort of say, okay, now if something happens, I know who I'm going to go to. So once you you figure out their communication then you can do that and if somebody is injured for instance you know instantly I sort of rush to that area of the sideline or that area of the field where I can get my eyes on it because as they always say if you're down on the sideline you are the eyes and ears for everybody else that's watching the game and even the guys up in the booth so I'll get positioned where I can see and then it's just a matter of watching what happens and then hoping to get a comment from somebody. Some schools in college football will comment on injuries and they'll say, hey, this is what's going on. Some don't at all. So then you are a little bit more, um, you know, kind of beholden to just what you've seen yourself and you have to say whatever that was. I think the other big thing, and you know this, Adam, is that we have to be so careful not to speculate. And that's, a, I think, overall a big thing in breaking news 
that's when you get yourself caught. You know, you, you want to make sure that you're saying, Hey, maybe I saw him really favoring that right ankle and he's in a lot of pain. He's grimacing, whatever it may be to paint the picture, but you never want to say, well, you know, I think he broke his ankle (laughs) because that may not be right. Uh, So, and and that's true, you know, in any type of breaking news, I think is you have to be very careful not to speculate. Yeah. We always have a a kind of mandate to make sure that we're not overstepping our bounds in any of these particular scenarios. I I've seen this happen to you. Uh, I know it's uh, it's happened at certain, (laughs) certain games, certain schools, especially in, in big time college football, where you guys have churned out this awesome open uh, here's the graphics we're going to do. Here's the story I have. Here's the stuff that the guys in the booth are going to talk about. We've planned out this wonderful thing, and then something changes. Something big happens. This is the breaking news that we're talking about, and there's a suspension. There's a quarterback change. There's a major news hit that all of a sudden changes the entire complexion of what you guys were going to talk about, not only at the beginning of a broadcast, but throughout the rest of it. Can you give me an example, perhaps, or even the process of how you guys all as a collective group go about changing your plans as to what you're going to do during a game? Yeah, I I can think of a number of examples. And I think the biggest thing in the way to handle this is you just have to be able to adjust so incredibly quickly. And that's why they say a lot of times that in TV, live sporting events are the most difficult events to broadcast because things like this do happen. You have to adjust on the fly. And, And for me, when that's happening and I'm trying to gather that information very quickly, I am even telling people as I'm asking them, be as concise as possible because I may not have a lot of time and I'm trying to get, you know, the Cliff Notes version that's going to hit you with the most important information. The other thing, too, and then I'll get to a couple examples, is when you're watching warm-ups for a game or when you're watching things that are happening at the beginning of events, I think it's very important to be paying incredibly close attention. And this is actually something that I learned from Holly Rowe, where she will sit there with the roster and the two deep for each team and make sure that she's checked every single one of those people off of her two deep that's out there in warm-ups. So if there's somebody missing, you know, we're noticing it because a lot of times we don't hear about these things happening and suddenly we're a couple plays into the game and it's like, hey, where's that guy? And that's the last thing that you want, you know, to be the case. So you want to know this stuff before pregame. And I can think of a couple times. There was one time a couple years ago at Texas A&M and this was my first year at SEC Network and Kenny Hill, uh, we were told, wasn't going to be playing in the game because he had been basically unseated from the starting quarterbacks spot and Kyle Allen was going to be getting the start and we we had asked coaches you know what's going on with this we felt like they were pretty honest with us they had said hey you know Kyle Allen was just better in practice Kenny Hill has struggled at times we're going to give Kyle Allen a chance and we're kind of thinking man that's a little bizarre that you that you would do that but we felt like they had convinced us well sure enough about uh 30 minutes before kick a release comes out that Kenny Hill had been suspended so then it all suddenly makes sense well then we have to adjust on the fly I'm down on the sideline immediately Immediately as this release comes out, I'm scrambling to figure out, you know, what's going on, trying to get information. And in that in that moment, my producer, Joe Taylor, says in my ear, hey, Laura, a game day, college game day is going to come to you live and, and they're going to ask you about this. And so I'm, I'm like, OK, well, Joe, how much time do I have? Uh, about 40 seconds. 
So, you know, it's a matter of just running around as crazy as possible and getting stuff uh, and then trying to deliver that information in a matter that makes sense. Another quick example was uh, this year when we were doing the Texas A&M LSU game. Seems like all, all these things happen around Texas <laughs> A&M, but, but this was LSU related uh, when there were reports that surfaced in the first quarter of our game, very early in our game, that Tom Herman from Houston was going to be hired as LSU's next head coach. And so we're trying to confirm these reports. I immediately go to the sports information director on the sideline for LSU and ask him about the reports. And he said, hey, you know, there's no truth to those. Uh, and Joe Oliva, the AD, is not going to comment probably, you know, but you could try. So so we took that very seriously and said, okay, well, Joe Oliva is here in the building. We're going to try. We're going to go try and get a comment from him. So I, I climbed up to his AD box and, and knocked on the door and was let in and talked to a few people and then asked if I could talk to him and then he wasn't really thrilled about seeing me there and, and really didn't give me a comment and so we so we reported that but you know that was a matter of going into that game there had certainly been rumors Adam that that Houston could be uh losing Tom Herman he could be going to LSU but we didn't expect it to break right then and there so yeah you know there we are that sort of changes the entire complexion of the game coach Ogeron for LSU who is coaching the game he's not even aware of these rumors and now of course he is the LSU head coach but at the time, you know, he was trying to get that job. So you have to be very sensitive to that. There are just so many layers to it that I think you are you are trying to think as big picture as possible, but also focus on that breaking news. So it feels like cultivate your sources, have your sources ready, gather the information as quickly and as concisely as possible and organize it in a way that's palatable and easy to absorb for a fan sitting at home. It seems like that's the process. Yeah, and take some deep breaths while you're at it. (laughs) (laughs) Great insight from Laura Rutledge from ESPN and the SEC Network. Laura, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to Laura for taking some time to talk to us. I kind of wanted to gauge your reaction. Obviously, Laura's a friend of mine. I've talked to her at various times about subjects like this in our professional careers, but I was kind of curious where your head was at listening to I it. think it's fascinating to hear. Just to hear like her perspective on things being like, well, there's somebody down there on the field right now who is the subject of this story and doesn't even know it. You know, They've got their head elsewhere, and there's dozens of people scrambling to try and figure out what's going on, and is this true, is this not true? And I'd still... And it happens in the episode, too, when they're like, well, we're not going to confirm this. We're not going to deny it. You know, like, no one's like... Nobody wants right. to say is, what is the Is that the confirmation? Like, hearing all the, the... I think you mentioned it as we were kind of going through things with the word choice is very particular and the way they're going to say, well, we're not denying it, but that makes it sound like you're kind of confirming it. And just hearing how it is actually put together in real life is pretty sweet. Yeah, I love to... And, I, and obviously, going back to the, to the scene that we're talking about, Natalie is, you know, oh, she hears this. Oh, guy at LAX... Hey, Kim, why don't you call the Vero Beach Hotel? Let's see if we can get our... our Because apparently, by the way, they've got sources everywhere, whether it's the bad guy at LAX, whether it's the chambermaid at this Vero Beach Hotel. Hey, who's in the room with uh, uh, with these people? Who is in the room? Uh, What do these people look like? And you're trying to figure... Like, these are the the little subplots that go on way back behind. I mean, you're pulling two or three curtains back now at this point to try to figure out how do I cultivate these sources? Like, you know, you, you, you might wonder how Adrian Wojnarowski, the, the phenomenal NBA reporter who drops Woj bombs, quote unquote, like that <laughs> every time he drops the news of a trade at the draft or something like that, he's always the first one seemingly to be on top of these stories. And you wonder how 
these guys and, and women have sources everywhere. You whether guy, it's, right. Whether you know it's the guy <laughs> on the field who you know is the guy you know the guy who's in the back of the locker room, or he's like the assistant equipment manager, or it's the you know whatever. There's so many people out there that that are willing to talk, and they want to be considered as people in the know about certain things. And you know, I, I, there's a lot of fascinating stories out there. Keith Olbermann, if you've never heard. Uh, he did a great podcast with Jonah Carey. It was like a two-part podcast. And he was talking about how he broke the news of the Wayne Gretzky trade from Edmonton to L.A., like back in the, uh, the early 90s. And it's fascinating to hear, like, he's got a guy at the hotel who was at the pool or was in the gym or something and was, like, next to the GM while he was running and, like, heard the GM talk. Like, the, some of these stories are just off the charts to fi- figure out how some people actually get the stories that they get. A lot of it's, like, just serendipity almost. Where some somebody Somebody was in the right spot, happened to see this or hear this. Absolutely. And- some, of that, some of that is how it works. And it's really cool to see how Natalie develops – uh, this story and like takes the sources that she's given and the information that she's given and tries to piece it all together. It's more credit to her as a producer yeah. again, being able to stay very calm with it. And like you said, just start saying, Kim, call this person, say that, you know, look for Mr. I forget. It sounds like an alias. Like she knows the alias. Sure, probably. Yeah, yeah. Like ask them if they want turn down service, but you know, like she, she knows she what's knows going on. She knows the buttons on. to push. And right. She knows the, the way to get some of the information that she wants to get. I did write down, when you are a producer, and this will kind of rear its head a little later, and we'll go back to Joe Taylor, uh, our next guest, when we get to that scene, but y- you see the demeanor that you have to have when you're sitting in that chair and you're the one in charge. So we come back from a commercial, and we're back at Anthony Anthony's, and we have got uh, Dana <laughs> seemingly getting a little loose. She's getting oh, drunk. She's a couple drinks She's in, relaxed yeah. a little bit, and she's, she's talking shrimp cocktail. <laughs> Nothing wrong with shrimp cocktail, man. Uh, we can see that Casey's still caught up in the show, seemingly not as drunk, but kind of keeps looking back, kind of looking over Lisa's shoulder as she's talking to him, at the checking out Dan on the monitor, right? Lisa clearly not having a very good time. The scene cuts back to the control room where the trade seems to be definitely going down, right? We get the details that there were five guys in the room. What do they look like? They're able to kind of pick out who some of these guys might be right. based on descriptions, which is pretty awesome. I like the one guy, young guy, Pat Riley hair. Don't, don't know. Don't know who that is. <laughs> And it's like Pet Riley hair, and you know exactly what they're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Very, very slick back and wet. At the desk, we've got Bobby and Dan still going on and on about having never slept together in Spain, or did they? Uh, Dan claims he's never even been to Spain, so there's all this, like, it just keeps going on. And I have a note that says they're almost yelling at each other about, like, we did not sleep with each other <laughs> on a soundstage surrounded by people. Yeah, there are a lot of people, like, They're wearing like, microphones. No one is like, guys, guys turn we, it down uh, a little bit. Yeah, if I was having an argument with somebody like this, they would immediately tell me to, hey, dude, shut up. <laughs> you got a live microphone on. Who knows who's listening? And this is totally unprofessional. This, <laughs> this, is, a rife, this is rife with unprofessionalism. Like we were just saying about there's a source everywhere. I'm surprised, like, the janitor <laughs> didn't call up, like, the Inquirer, yeah. People Magazine. He'd be like, hey, Dan Rindell <laughs> apparently is banging the uh, – page, page six. Yeah, this yeah, is like, this page could be information here. This is page six worthy material right now. I've loved the juxtaposition of all the professionalism going on in the control room mm-hmm. with Natalie, who has never done this job before in, in a real moment like this, <laughs> compared to the quote-unquote veterans out on the soundstage who are just screaming at each other about <laughs> sleeping together. Dan is trying to keep Bobby focused. I love the little stare he gives her, this exasperated stare, which she says, oh, right, because women are just there for you, right? And he just gives her this look like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like he's just out of, out of energy to deal with her. We cut back to the restaurant very briefly, and we have Dana and Casey still going on and on about the show. We see Dana 
and Casey focused and arguing and focused and arguing and sitting at the table with them. Lisa and Gordon just kind of like, oh, dear God. This goes back to what we were discussing. You pointed it out earlier about the great directorial choices in this particular episode. And Tommy Shlami zooms in so close to just Dana and Casey locked in. It's like nobody else is there. You almost it, could forget that they're with other people. They're on dates with other people. Exactly. Yeah. They've shot this in a way that makes it seem like uh, they're like in their own little world right now. And then when they show Lisa telling them, you know, hey, just so you guys know, you're totally obsessed with your jobs. This isn't the Paris Peace Talks. Yeah, it's ex- just sports. It's just sports. Dana has her back to Gordon, <laughs> and Casey has his back to Lisa. Like, they've completely forgot. Casey's, like, totally turned around. It's almost A.C. Slater style, like, sitting over the back of the chair. Exactly. Totally yeah. turned like, around. Not, like, there's no eye contact whatsoever at this point. Don't get me wrong. I totally get the obsession with the job. I've I, I've had women bail out on me for this very reason because of my, <laughs> my marriage to my work and all that stuff. But you know what? Like, you, you could at least show, show like go like face to face with this person that you're on a date with and, I th- and obviously we get when we get further along they both realize how stupid they're being by being so locked into other things seemingly for good reason though as there is some good stuff there, going oh, down absolutely we cut back to the control room and natalie totally under control they're talking through what's going to happen elliot is on the phone with another source it seems like probably within the team trying to get information we don't want your name we just want to confirm or deny he gets off the phone without getting anything and we see jeremy really fly off the handle it's a blown phone call as he starts to kind of curse out elliot for not getting not getting something they can run with which i thought that's interesting because we're used to i mean jeremy's very neurotic and very nerdy and we've seen him kind of like you know freak out before but not in this way he's like angry and he really seems way way unprofessional shouting at elliot for you know for not getting a confirmation or denial i mean obviously they're both very passionate about it and i and and obviously they want to get the story right i I, they're doing this in front of isaac by the way first and foremost they're like going nuts at each other in front of their executive producer and their boss but again natalie is the cool calm collected person in this entire ordeal and when you are in that chair and she got aggressive with jeremy like the, the what she says is, yeah. is a killer line elliot you feel okay saying unconfirmed reports yeah kim yeah you can't run any report natalie you got a baggage handler and a chambermaid no one's saying this is happening you want to leave the room no then allow for the possibility that from time to time other people might be at least as smart as you are almost like a like a teacher talking to a kindergartner at some at some points in this oh absolutely and she she makes it very clear like let other people do their jobs and this is where things get really interesting and i wanted to bring in joe taylor the producer from espn and the sec network who again will bring up some similar examples that laura earlier in the episode brought up uh there's a lot of crossover there because obviously they work together and have seen a lot of similar circumstances but i thought this would be the perfect time to bring joe in and kind of get his perspective on some of these options and some of these routes that you have to take. Natalie talks about, are you okay with us saying unconfirmed reports? Are you okay with using this particular yeah, word choice? She takes a poll of the room. Like, exactly. is this okay? Is this what we should do? And she asks everybody in the room, and, and Joe has some really good insight on that as well. Joe, you've been in situations where you and your crew plan out this fantastic open, and you have all this great content, and it's going to go right down to the plan like it always does. That's sarcasm for those who didn't realize it, but you have also been in situations where you have this content ready, and then something breaking happens. Newsy, whether it's injury-related, suspension-related, when you're in the heat of it, when you're sitting in a producer's chair, 
What's the process like of trying to adjust on the fly when breaking news is happening? When the storm clouds are gathering? When the storm clouds are gathering. Uh, I think the most important thing is obviously getting the story correct. Like you said, you can plan for everything, but when the unexpected happens, rather than being first, you need to be right. So obviously confirming uh, whatever the breaking news is, if there's time, kind of running it up the ladder with regards to uh, the news group, uh, Simon Desk, your boss. You know, if you've got the story right, then you then you go with it. Then you kind of drop everything else and, and you go with what the most pressing news is. Is there a situation that you feel like has come up where you've kind of skipped that? We, you know, whether you have a specific answer or not or a specific scenario or not. Have you? Do you feel like you've ever had to just say, you know, we have this, and you know, let's roll with it. I, I feel my guts right in this particular scenario. Have you ever just said, you know, we have to do this because I think it's the right move to make? In my situation, not as far as breaking news is concerned, as far as doing live events are concerned. No, and that's a tough situation. I think the key is you gotta be right because um, yeah. eventually you're gonna have to answer for your decision right or wrong so it's tough because in a live situation you sometimes you do have to make a uh, a snap judgment but with regards to breaking news you know you don't want to become the story you need to report the story at that point you become a news gathering and reporting service so if that was the case you need to run that through the proper channels when you feel like you have a grasp on something, you've gotten the information from the sources that you cultivate, whether it's a sports information director or your reporter or somebody in the in the school administration or whatever it may be, when you feel like you have the proper channels uh, hit up, how do you want to go through that process of organizing and delivering that news that you've come up with? Well, yeah, sometimes you're in a situation where you get what might be considered breaking news uh, and you've got kind of got a, a hold on it until you come on the air, as long as the uh, team or people in question are OK with that. And if that's the case, best bet is obviously, again, kind of run it up the chain of command, work together with your production crew kind of figure out the best way you want to go about telling that story. And in that case, uh, when you have a little bit of time, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes, just to get kind of get all your ducks in a row, make sure your facts are straight, uh, your pronunciations are straight, and uh, you're good uh, with regards to uh, how the school feels about it or the team feels about it and how your uh, your crew feels about it. Then I, I think that's kind of the best way to, to go about it. Do you think there's a, I don't want to call it a, an epidemic or anything like that, but do you think there is an issue in in the kind of the way we approach news now as a whole in media? There's more of a get it first mentality than get it right mentality? Oh, completely, completely. And I think there's not enough accountability on people who get it out there first and end up being wrong. Obviously, if you're a bigger organization, you're going to get crushed for it, for getting it wrong. But in the end, it's got to be right. I mean, that's uh, it doesn't matter if you're first, if you're wrong. It simply doesn't. Then you just open up a whole other can of worms that you do not want to deal with. Excellent insight from Joe Taylor from ESPN and the SEC Network, as always. I don't know why I said as always, because it's not like you've ever done this before. But either way, sincerely <laughs> do appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, again, great insight from Joe in that particular regard. And he actually did follow up with me with a couple of quotes that I wanted to read to you guys because uh, I thought they were good 
added bonuses to what we were talking about and specifically what Natalie deals with. Joe is a big fan of the show, by the way. He really does enjoy Sports Night, as you heard the uh, Storm Clouds Catherine <laughs> reference there, too. But he said, uh, I recall that Natalie got her boss's approval, Isaac, before going with the unconfirmed report initially. Now, she does say, obviously, can we go with unconfirmed reports and I call McDermott, who is seemingly the GM who's making one one part of the trade and he and joe says that it's important to note that because if that turns out to be not true like if they go with this report and it turns out to be false or it ends up not going down she ends up being the one holding the bag for it she should be the one who's held accountable for it you heard joe talk about accountability i was thinking about your question about being first or being right i have a hard time remembering who has broken stories first but people never forget someone who breaks a story that ends up being false, especially now the internet never forgets. So really, really good insight from Joe from the producer's chair. I, while hearing Joe talk, was constantly thinking about that newsroom episode that dealt with uh, Gabrielle Giffords and yeah, her shooting. Absolutely. And that, I mean, even though it's extremely heavy handed, it's that same deal. Where it's, they, though, take the high road and say, well, wait a second, you know. While Coldplay what's, what's is the, what's, blasting. What's, what's the famous quote? He says, uh, a doctor, doctor pronounced dead, dead, not, not, not us. Right. Yeah, and so they hold off. But it's that same deal where, as he was saying, as, as both of you guys were saying, everyone wants to be first. We've got to get this out there before anyone else. But what happens when you're wrong? It's the, the Dewey defeats Truman thing from yeah. the, what year was it, 48? From the presidential election. Like, the Chicago Tribune, huge newspaper, screwed up. Like, you, you make these bad calls. You make these predictions. Uh, and it's just, when it doesn't play out, what, what happens? I think, you know, there's the firestorm of... That on that one person who made that call, who's the person who said it? Even if it's not, maybe it's the on-air person who says it. They're not the one who decided to say it, but they're the person they're, that's going to be connected to it. it. Right. They're going to be held accountable for it. So that's why us as on-air personalities, uh, we want to be very careful about this. You heard Laura talk about it earlier. We want to make sure that we're not overstepping our bounds. We're saying what's correct. We're trying not to speculate in a lot of these circumstances. So I really do like Natalie. And again, she does initially go with the unconfirmed they're going with unconfirmed reports and that's how they start with this story and they do go on air saying unconfirmed reports and dan goes on the air you heard the word choices mm. that they want to use uh, do you want me to say sources inside the organization and natalie says why don't we go with sources inside the gm's office even though the, the sources may not be in the GM's office, but they're all in the same room. That's their quote-unquote office. Right. The hotel room right now <laughs> is the office. So, I mean, there's really intricate stuff that we're talking about to try to quote-unquote get this right or at least deliver the news as fast as we can without putting too much out there that we don't know. Things end up being all right for the Sports Night crew, though, as later on in the show... They get the phone call. It is confirmed. So it really did really did play out well. What do you think the fallout would have been if there was no trade and they went on with the unconfirmed reports? Do you think, I mean, obviously the word choice is kind of your safety net, like we were saying. How do you think, you know, the show would have handled that if it was like, oh, no, never mind. They were just uh, getting together for a nightcap. Well, I'll tell you this right now. Natalie probably doesn't get to produce again. Not for a while, not for a long time. <laughs> not necessarily because she did anything wrong, but you have to be right. That's what Joe was talking about. You have to be right. In these circumstances, you cannot be wrong. You can always take the safe road and say, you know what, we don't know. I think this is an epidemic, maybe just in the world in general, not just sports. But you're allowed to say, I don't know once in a while. You're allowed to not know every piece of information that's out there. It's okay to 
not be first. It's okay to be right rather than be the first one to just throw something out there. I'm not a hot taker. I don't like hot take society. I don't like throwing darts at the wall and seeing what ends up sticking. I'd rather be educated, measured, and write about something. And I'm sure most of us who are in this business want to take that route instead of, well, let's just throw a couple things out there, and I think maybe this is good. Why don't we go with this, and let's see what happens. I'm not a see-what-happens type of guy, which is ironic. You know, <laughs> going in this series, you're going you're gonna to hear the, the phrase, see Napoleon's what happens. Napoleon's, exactly, Napoleon stuff. So I think it's better to, like Joe was saying, just be right rather than be the first one who's, who's coming up with this stuff. I love the insight that Joe brought to this because Natalie's got split-second decisions to make. She's got to be the one in control of all of this, and there should be accountability if she gets it wrong. I think Natalie knows that if she gets this wrong or screws it up or it doesn't go down the way it's supposed to, she may not get another chance to, to be in that chair, maybe not ever or maybe not at least for a very long time. That may be why uh, Jeremy was so upset too. Maybe he knows that and is like, he, oh, he knows how big the stakes are and doesn't want her to get... Yeah, that, remember, that's his girlfriend. Right, he wants he's to like make sure being that, protective kind that of. He's, he's being protective and he doesn't want her to be wrong, but there's, I mean, there's a lot riding personally and professionally for these people. I think it's interesting, too. You, you kind of tied it with today and kind of the approach we have. This was, again, not that long ago, but at the time when there were really only, there was like, what, the four big sports networks in sure. this in this world. Yep. Uh, and there are number three of that. So it was like teams of people chasing this down. It wasn't Twitter. There weren't blogs necessarily, or there were, but they weren't like as widespread. So now I think because there is so much competition, because so many individuals know this could be my moment, this could be like, Hey, as reported by Joe Schmo on Twitter, and yeah. he was right. This could be like their their way to break in. I think it's even worse that that like all everybody you get a million different outlets oh, of instead of just like well, you know, CSC said it. That's CSC. It would be like if you heard on ESPN. Well, it's ESPN. You respect that. There's yeah. credentials. And again, like Joe said, like when you're a bigger organization, like an ESPN in this world. Uh, CSC. If you're one of those organizations, you get it wrong. Your credibility right. is on the line every single time. But Joe Schmo, he was already nobody. Uh, he doesn't care. Who right? Cares? Who cares if I if I didn't say it? There has been actually a pretty. I don't know how widespread it is right now, but somebody on Twitter talked about U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis housing the homeless on a record-breaking cold night. This is within the last week. That were you know from when we're recording this, I think it was December the 18th, and it was a joke apparently. And some reporter saw it on Twitter and ran with it as like news, and all of a sudden, and then it just snowballed, and it, and it out of snowballed into into like, oh yeah, well, look at the Vikings, look what they're doing, and the Vikings are like, we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> like you can't, how do you how do you go with that? Right. What you saw it on Twitter and you think it's it's completely in well, utterly that's, true that's as the your danger. reporter? This is the whole like with the last with the election and all the fake news and the the. You know, I say that in air quotes, but it was fake news yeah. with uh, with election stuff and reports about this side and that side. And it's people get way too. It seems real. Like, yeah. oh, I read it on, on Facebook or it got shared two billion times. It's got to be real. It's like, got to be real if this no, many no. people are buying into it. And it's like, no, guys, it's not it, you're like you got to research. You got to be right. And you got to have credibility. And and I do feel bad because at this time it feels like whether it's sports or not. Uh, media credibility feels like it's at stake right now with yeah. the, you know and and whether it's one side accusing the other of of ginning up stories or you know vice versa uh, you know, of, of of fabricating things like it's the, the credibility is very important like you need trust in in the what is it called the fourth estate or whatever so like you need trust in the people 
that are trying to deliver you news, whether it is something as inconsequential as a sports trade or whether it is something as consequential as a story that relates directly to an election. This reminds me also of just a couple of days ago. I just had to pull it up. Denzel Washington was talking to a reporter about, did you see this? No. He's saying basically the same thing. He's like, well, it's hard to be informed properly. If you yeah, read the yeah, newspaper, yeah, that's right, that's right, you're yeah, misinformed. Yeah. If you don't, you're uninformed. Like, it's very hard to get the real news. And that's what, I thought that was a very smart yeah, it's a, it's a really, statement. It's a really tough spot to be in right now. So, again, that's where it all goes back to for Joe, for Laura, for me, for all of us. It goes back to one thing. It's more important to be right than it is to be the first one to break something out there. Great insight from them. We cut back to dinner. Disaster, basically. As we were saying, nobody was really paying any attention to their dates. Casey is trying to pay attention to Lisa, but isn't. Uh, everything just kind of falls down. Sitting at the table now is Dana and Gordon, where Dana kind of confesses. She's still a little drunk, a little tipsy. Sure. She confesses, I've been, I've been terrible tonight, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah and, and, and Gordon kind of, and you can tell he's choosing his words carefully. He's like... Yeah, you could be better, right? Like it's he's trying carefully to not like be like yeah, you're you suck, but yeah. he wants to. You can tell that he wants to. Yeah, handsome Ted is uh, is, is is obviously a little hurt right now. Oh, he's now. like exasperated, and I he mean, starts to Dana. I don't think, and then boom, and here then, comes and Casey. Then here comes Casey because he just heard on TV Dan use the phrase unconfirmed reports. So now he's got to go get Dana. They're worried about what's going on in the show. And, and you see that when they leave, when Dana and Casey leave the table, the look on Gordon. So he's got his you know, hands over his eyes, and he's so uh, like frustrated right now with, with, this, with, with this person that he seemingly loves and is in a relationship with. He's clearly frustrated. He, he, you kind of feel for, again, we know <laughs> what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, we know what's going to happen, but, but you, you feel, you feel bad for the guy. I mean, this is a guy with a very serious job as well. You know, he's a, he's a district assistant district attorney. He's got a very high-pressure job. He's, he's got some high-stakes stuff going on himself. Absolutely. But he, that's and he's why trying, he's, and he's trying to make time. Yes. He's, I bought these tickets. Let's go on a double date. Let's bring Casey and Lisa along. It'll be a good time. Hey, way to loosen up. Glad you're not worried about the show. Oh, yes. wait, you're worried about the show. And not, not making excuses for what will be revealed in a couple of episodes. But you do feel for him being like... Living in a vacuum right now. Yes. He is a sympathetic figure. Absolutely. So, oof. Dana gets escorted away by Casey, and then we cut back into a, a shouting match again between Dan and Bobby Bernstein. Like, I didn't sleep with you! It's just so crazy to me that they're just they're literally shouting at each other. And then Natalie starts talking in the earpiece about, wait, we're getting some news, we're getting some news, and I love Bobby Bernstein saying, are you sleeping with Natalie? Yeah, <laughs> She's that's really, a, that's where really she, drilling She her. really plays the crazy crazy lady angle very, very well here, and really drills the, like you said, drills the point home. I'm insane. With, again, living in a vacuum without knowing what's going to happen forward, just living in this vacuum in this episode, she plays the crazy lady very well. She plays like a likable crazy lady. Likable crazy lady. And Dan does a a, a good job, to his credit, of kind of, I mean, while he's really just shutting down this girl over and over again, he doesn't, like, lose his mind. He tries to stay focused. But Natalie's telling him in his earpiece, hey, the trade is confirmed, and we hear him kind of spouting out some details in the background. Seven players, $120 million contracts, total going back and forth between these guys i love how natalie plays it like she, she calls mcdermott i you don't have to confirm or deny it but it's going on the air right now right. so if you have something you might want to tell me and this is kind of how these things go with whether it's reporters or producers and their sources and this is how a lot of this stuff goes and you'll see the anchors have their own sources too like everybody's got like their people Isaac earlier in the episode said, I talked to the GM. It's not happening. Like Isaac, who's right. been in the business forever, probably has a million sources, but he's letting his people 
Natalie in this particular case go out, get the story the way they need to get the story, and Natalie with her plan, with her uh, method of getting the story right, gets the confirmation, gets all the details, gives them to Dan on the fly, and they get to nail the story. And then while the show's going on, <laughs> Natalie gets a phone call from, yeah. from Dana and Casey for, for, to, to congratulate her. Hey, you know, the job. show's still going on, guys. I got work, I got work to do here, you know? <laughs> It is. It, it really played out like a like a really good hand of poker, pretty much. Yeah, where it was yeah, like yeah. raising the bet here, and you know, kind of trying to read the other players at yeah, the table. And then Natalie's like flat out saying, almost reminiscent to Jeremy saying, "I've got a straight. You got three sevens. She's like, "I I know. I'm gonna go on. Yeah. So you can confirm it. Or, you know, exactly. Here it is. Like she played it the way she needs. She to knows play exactly. It. She's got him beat. So that's that's a, a nice conclusion. The story played out well. They did it. They got it. That's a sports night exclusive, or that's a CSC exclusive, Dan says at the end. Yeah, is, now, yeah. How, do you, how do I tag this? And it's like, well, first off, take a bow and go tag it. Tag it, Dan, <laughs> and, and they get to say, see, you see how pumped they are when they get the exclusive. Like, that's, that's a boost to our credibility. We nailed the story. We got it right. Not only were we right, but we were first and right, which is more important. You want to be right first. But it's a nice bonus to be the first one to break that story. Some extra points for a third-place team. Maybe moving up. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe move up a little bit. So, that again, that is a really, really big deal for uh, for these guys. And, it, and you know, at the restaurant, Dana and Casey, the callback to earlier in the episode, you're going to say some. you think you're going to say something so charming and great, and I'm going to feel bad that I'm with Gordon, not with you, and Casey really kind of lays it into that, that one line, and Dana, <laughs> Dana melts a little bit at the table. They, at this point, are – completely secluded from their dates the two of them are sitting alone <laughs> they've at the abandoned bar. lisa and gordon i can only really wonder what the conversation with lisa and gordon is right now like what the hell is going on with those two so sorry casey kind of sucks huh <laughs> yeah dana kind of sucks too like like i think that's maybe maybe this is where the downfall i mean this is clearly where the downfall begins for dana and gordon oh absolutely fun fact as Dana and Casey are sitting at the bar kind of talking in this this last scene yeah. with them sitting beside them smoking a cigarette Aaron Sorkin and I would have missed it I've missed it probably as many times as I've seen this I missed it missed it missed it but Janet Ashikaga pointed out there he is sitting there just puffing away very kind of dark haired he's got that long kind of combed combed sideways swoopy swoopy side part and he's got his suit with his tie a little undone long day of work clearly for Aaron Sorkin at his law firm or whatever (laughs) whatever it is that he works in New York and he's he's just sitting there taking a load out we'll try and uh, we'll take a screenshot of that and put it on the website because it's so funny like oh there he is is. that's the guy that wrote the show he definitely Definitely, it's it's not necessarily. Uh, he's not like a Hitchcockian kind of move, but he likes to. He kind of pops in <laughs> in a couple in of different things. He's different definitely shows. in the social network when they go for the one the one meeting, and he's like, "What is this? What do you?" Think? He's in there somewhere. He makes a late appearance in the West Wing at the inauguration. Uh, I think in the last season, he's like at Matt Santos's inauguration. So he likes to pop into the show once in a while, whenever he gets a chance to to be a little more nondescript about it. Part of this, I think, goes to and again back to the commentary. Uh, Janet Ashikaga said something about him. He's very kind of hands-on because he thinks, and therefore everyone working on the show thinks, that it's it's the dialogue that is what carries the story. It's yeah. what the characters are saying. So he's very particular about sticking to the script and sometimes even doing tiny little like rewrites while it's being filmed to make sure, well, this needs to flow a little better. That needs to flow a little better. So I'm sure he was there, you know, not just like, hey, I want to sneak. Can I get on, the, on camera? But he was certainly making sure things were clicking really well. Another kind of note, just to stick with that because it's it's connecting with that. Uh, she says that as an editor, she she got to a point where 
she knew she was doing a good job where she could show him an edit of a scene and he didn't sigh or he didn't like shake his head because she had trimmed a little bit. Okay. So that's like she got to know his writing style enough to be like, well, I know he's going to want all these words, but I can I can nix this a little bit. Here. I was going to say because you know he wants all the, not only all the words that he wrote because he wrote them with purpose. He thinks that they're all important, but he wants the pace of the right. episode to continue. It's and, a rhythm. And, he's yeah. got that very particular rhythm. Exactly. And that goes to say, back to at least Edelstein doing a great job. Edelstein, Edelstein. I can't, I'm not being consistent oh, with her okay. name. But to her credit, and any one-off character, any special guest, it's not easy dialogue to work with some of these things. Well, we've heard uh, Josh Molina talk about it on the West Wing Weekly on their podcast, and I've, I've heard them say, like, when guest actors and actresses come on, like it's a difficult thing to age to adjust to the pace and the sure, speed and the sure. tempo and the volume of words that you're using and you know if if you're Ainsley Hayes played by Emily Proctor you're coming in and trying to step into this particular cadence and rhythm of how to speak these words that are and written sur- on this paper and surrounded by a, a group Veterans, of people who've yeah, been doing this exactly, and like they yeah, know yeah. what's going on speaking on that I just keep going back there's so much I, I've oh, barely touched stuff. on my notes no, here. I, 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 I got a sneak peek. There's a lot of stuff here. But uh, she also mentioned that Robert Guillaume, who had most of his television experience like in Soap and on uh, Benson, that's regular kind of standard sitcoms, she said he was not super comfortable with like the long runs and the speeches. He was much more comfortable with just kind of short reactions. And she said him, and especially in this episode, he's got a lot of that. And yeah. it's like that's when he shines. But it maybe if you think about it, maybe like when he was giving his speech in Six Southern Gentlemen, that's uncomfortable for him to have sure. these long, verbose very rhythmic kind of uh, kind of deliveries, but you know they make it work. They're down there for a while. So I agree. again, just just thumbs up to everybody. So as the show starts to wrap up, uh, everyone's really celebrating, cheering on Natalie. Bobby Bernstein kind of continues, and that's what you do, Dan. You lift up a woman's spirit and then dash, <laughs> dash them to, to the, the ground. ground. <laughs> and he, what does he say? Well, it's the only way I can get them to my laboratory. Dan, just like at this point, having fun with it because he's like, oh, this is this is just too much for me to deal exactly. with. Exactly. Uh, we have a then kind of somber scene at the end here as, as Natalie kind of hangs around making sure everything's okay and everything's closing up. A little heart-to-heart with Jeremy and Natalie as he apologizes. He's like, look, I, I'm sorry. You, you did a great job. And she's almost offended, right? What did you think I was? Just like just an assistant? Just some gal Friday? Like, you think I wasn't somebody? He exactly. says, I didn't know you were that good, right? She really knocked it out of the park. Some gal Friday I did look up, and apparently gal Friday is an efficient and faithful woman aide or employee. So somebody who might be, you know, very helpful, but not we're not talking about somebody who's in charge. So that's gal. Some gal Friday means you're just some random good employee, not somebody who's in a position of power like Natalie was in this episode, and she killed it. I mean, every step she made, seemingly every button she pushed, every word she said, every management of an ego that she had to deliver she hit all the right buttons to be in that chair for the first time. They have that nice little moment. She she reaches into her purse and pulls out a Finsky to give to him because, hey, you were right. <laughs> and he kind of like... You, you, you win the bet. And they, they have a nice little kiss. Snuffy comes in with some perfectly timed guitar chords. Yep. It all works out well. Uh, and as another, another great cinematic ending as everything's kind of going on, hustle and bustle of the newsroom still. A slow pullback out of the control room, into the newsroom. Everything's kind of... St- going quickly still and natalie just gives that yeah that like celebratory celebratory fist bump she she knows she nailed it i love shots like that because that's a shot you don't see normally in a sitcom you don't see the set like that set exists there is a there is a studio and then there is a control room and then there is a newsroom that's like a full 
office that they've built and you get to see all of it as they pull back slowly and you you just really get sucked in and, and it's that immersive like wow this is a whole this is a real place this is almost. a real place and, and again they've designed it pretty accurately i think for the most part as they pull out natalie celebrates we get the title card we get the end it's a pretty it's a solid episode again as we said at the top one that i mean i remember various lines i remember characters but if as a whole Really pleasantly surprised by how much I, I enjoyed this one. You know, we've had a couple of palate cleansing episodes, some quick ones, you know, talking just about the show itself. But we had a lot to break down in this episode, plus the guests that we brought in. We appreciate Laura Rutledge and Joe Taylor taking time out of their schedules to talk to us about, you know, not only their jobs, but this show. And there's a lot to digest here. And I think this kind of sets us up for, you know, the final six, seven episodes of this season really to make the push towards the end but there is a lot to digest we get so much out of natalie for this we've gotten a lot out of her before hey i have a journalism degree from northwestern all that and now we learn her background even further than her college days small town you know dana kind of looks at that as kind of well how is she going to handle it she only graduated with 32 people you know and she's able to step into this role and really show a lot of growth in this a lot of uh seeds kind of planted whether we know it or not as well about yeah. certain drama that might be coming or, or kind of personal problems but good enough that it's not heavy-handed it's stuff that like we said ourselves we kind of forgot bobby bernstein shows back up but like you get enough to revisit it later on we can go back to the well which is good stuff so next time on those stories plus we get a chance to introduce another character which is one of i think our favorite characters oh, so in all honesty. rebecca and the episode title is also rebecca but terry polo will make her first appearance as rebecca in uh, the next episode, episode 14. One of my favorite story arcs as a whole is the Dan Rebecca storyline that carries on th pretty much for the rest of the season. So I'm very excited to get into that. That's nice. That's going to be fun to talk about. We're looking forward to it next time. Of course, you can subscribe to our podcast and download it on iTunes at Those Stories Plus. Of course, you can also check it out on Stitcher, and you can check our website to download it as well at thosestoriespod.weebly.com. You can, of course, follow us just about everywhere on the internet at thosestoriespod. You can follow Adam at Adam Amin and me at SJCIM. I swear I'll start posting something <laughs> soon. Again, you can, uh, if you're so inclined, give us a rating on iTunes as well. If you enjoy the podcast, let us know what you think. We haven't really been asking for it, but you know, I feel like we can request it a little bit. If you enjoy it and, and, and if you're so inclined to give us a rating, and we appreciate Caroline Crampton. You can follow her at C underscore Crampton, the assistant editor and podcast columnist for New Statesman in London, of all places, <laughs> uh, giving us a little bit of uh, international pub and some press, uh, getting a chance to talk to her about TV show podcasts. We're excited to be able to do this one for you. So until next time, I'm Steve Semino alongside Adam Amin, and you've been listening to Those Stories Plus. Those Stories Plus.